It's Thursday, July 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In a surprise ruling for many, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on Wednesday overturned Bill Cosby's sexual assault conviction, paving the way for him to be immediately released from prison. He is already home. The justices ruled that since the previous prosecutor said he would not charge Cosby in exchange for testimony and a deposition, any further prosecution would be barred. Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst, joins us for what to know about the ruling. Next, we are seeing record temperatures in the Pacific Northwest and an early start to wildfire season, causing concern for local officials and the Biden administration. In response, officials are planning to roll out measures designed to lower the risk of these fires and also raise the pay for federal wildland firefighters in the hopes of retaining them at the end of the season. Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios, joins us for how we are preparing for wildfire season. Finally, the champ has been dethroned. No longer can Los Angeles claim it has the worst traffic, a title it has held since 1982. Now, the New York-Newark region has the worst traffic distinction with people spending over 494,000 hours stuck in traffic. Los Angeles dropped off the top spot all because of the pandemic and the stay-at-home orders. Jordan Mendoza, reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In closing, this was an unwanted three-year vacation that Mr. Cosby never asked for. But... If Mr. Cosby conviction being overturned is for the world and all Americans who are being treated unfairly by the judicial system and some bad officers, because all, all officers are not bad. Joining us now is Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst. Thanks for joining us, Lou. Sure. Glad to be here. Well, we got a surprise ruling on Wednesday out of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They are throwing out Bill Cosby's sexual assault conviction. This opens a way for his immediate release from prison. Lou, help us walk through this. As I mentioned, this is a very surprise ruling for a lot of people. Yes, maybe for the general public. But for most legal analysts that were watching this case, we were baffled at the second trial. When the judge, after the first trial, says, I'm only allowing one other uncharged witness to testify, so now he's allowing five. So we were really taken back by that. We thought it was way too prejudicial than probative. Uh, We thought that the jury would get confused and misled, and they did. They convicted uh, in the second trial and did not convict in the first trial. So that by itself was a big appellate issue. And then you add to the fact that Cosby was promised that when he would give testimony in the civil deposition, that that testimony will not be used against him in a subsequent criminal matter. And then it is. That's not fair. Even a Bill Cosby is afforded the same rights and protections and guarantees that anybody else would be. And he wasn't given them. And the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court made the right decision in reversing this. Was this promise not to prosecute? Is that something that was done in writing? How how was that not brought up the first time around? Apparently, it was not done in writing. So they always say a contract is worth the paper that it's written on. However, it does not seem to be disputed that the previous prosecutor verbally said that. And because that was a verbal agreement, And Cosby justifiably relied on it when he gave that incriminating testimony. That was enough for the state Supreme Court to say, just because something isn't put in writing doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean there wasn't that conversation. Doesn't mean Cosby didn't justifiably rely on it. 
And for that reason, they said he cannot be uh, retried based on this victim again, because he was promised that his testimony would not be used against him in the trial. Since this is the top court in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, as you mentioned, he can't be retried. Is there any other uh, recourse? I mean, this wouldn't rise up to the U.S. Supreme Court or anything like that, would it? No, it's game over uh, for the prosecution on this one. The only other thing they might try to do is if they have a different victim who falls within the statute of limitations to try him, um, maybe, but it doesn't appear that they do. And I think if I'm the prosecutor, I think they're going to walk away from this thing. Look, he served some time. It was an old case. We tried him two times. We've got our pound of flesh. I think we need to move on quietly from this one. Uh, You mentioned about uh, how they allowed other women to testify on this. Uh, They said that this kind of rose to character attacks. Can you help us explain some of that and, and why that's important? So the rules of evidence do not allow bad character evidence to be used against a defendant in a case because the concern is that if a jury hears that somebody did something uh, similar in a previous situation, that they probably will think, okay, once a thief, always a thief kind of rationale. So the rules of evidence are very strict on instructing a judge, you are only to allow an evidence of this case and not of previous acts, previous similar cases against the defendant. Now, like any law, there's always exceptions. And there are a few exceptions to that rule. Like one exception is to show motive. The person has a tendency to do something like this. They are wired that way. He's saying he he doesn't do this kind of uh, hacking or breaking into an entry. He did the same kind of thing in the previous case. You can see the identity is the same. So there are exceptions. Uh, Or to show that this didn't happen by mistake, meaning he says he didn't give her a pill that put her to sleep. But what about these other five girls who say they got the same pill that put them to sleep? So you can't say this was an accident or I accidentally gave the wrong pill because you did it five other times. So those are exceptions that it can come in for those reasons alone. But the problem is, if you allow too many exceptions, if you allow too many witnesses to testify, then what happens is the jury starts getting prejudice. And the job of a trial judge is to make sure that there's not too many of those exceptions coming in, which clouds the jury and results in an unfair conviction. So, you know, in the end, Lou, I mean, this is, uh, is this a mistake on the prosecutor's side for just to have even gone forth with that second trial? Uh, I mean, where do we land on that? Cosby is going to probably come out of this saying, I'm vindicated. I'm innocent. I wasn't convicted. Right. That's probably where he's going to go. And he says, I told you all along I'm innocent. And here's the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court telling you that. Right. But really, that's not what's happening. Really, what's happening is when the prosecution may say this is that the case is old. It's difficult to prove cases from such a long time ago without being able to use you know, forensic evidence and so forth. They gave it the best they had. But the rules of evidence just prevent them from really proving the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a safeguard, not just for Cosby, but against everybody else that's accused of something that happened a long time ago. The longer a prosecution waits to prosecute someone, the worse position it puts a defendant in. And that's the takeaway here, that everybody's rights and liberties are protected, especially as we go into the July 4th holiday. Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Last week, I learned that some of our federal firefighters are being paid less than $13 an hour. Come on, man. This is, that's unacceptable to me. 
and I immediately directed my team to take decisive action to fix it. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. We are going through a pretty bad heat wave in the Pacific Northwest right now. The wildfire season in the West is also starting early. Earlier, It always starts <laughs> earlier than before every year now. But we're seeing some action from the Biden administration to help bolster some wildfire preparedness. They also want to raise federal firefighters' pay, which was an interesting thing because I guess Biden expressed surprise that some of them were only being paid about $13 an hour. I didn't know that either. Uh, so, Andrew, help us walk through some of what we're hearing on this. I mean, first of all, the, the heat wave is absolutely unprecedented. We haven't seen temperatures at these levels in the Pacific Northwest or Western Canada ever, you know, since records go back to the 19th century and probably much before that. The wildfire season clearly has the White House worried. It has Western governors worried because of the drought situation. The White House is moving to take several steps to try to bolster firefighters' capabilities and response, basically to establish surge forces that could be sent out west if the active duty fighter, firefighters on fires were uh, were to be overwhelmed or overtaxed or need you know replenishment. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting one right there too because they wanted to train, I guess, members of the military even to act as this kind of surge force if needed. Yeah, I mean, the military right now is involved in firefighting insofar as they have certain aircraft, so certain C-130 Hercules aircraft are configured so that they can basically take out some parts and swap in others, and they become aerial tankers. So they do bring in military aircraft when things get bad. And there are military firefighters that they call on, but they want there to be more. And they also want, obviously, to raise firefighters' pay, which they're doing through relatively creative means right now because they can't get that through Congress super quickly. But they want that to be done on a more permanent basis. They want to give retention bonuses to active duty firefighters to make sure that they stay for the next season and even bonuses to temporary firefighters to try to convert them to more of a permanent employee so that they have a more experienced right. staff. Are these the, your regular firefighters at your local firehouse in, in your city here and there? Because it says federal wildline firefighters. So where are these firefighters located? So these are uh, various crews from different federal agencies, Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Agriculture Department, U.S. Forest Service. From um, They're divided into teams that cover different national forest areas. So most of these crews are ultimately based or run out of the National Interagency Fire Center, which coordinates federal firefighting response efforts. That is in Idaho, I believe. You know, there are crews there. So you can think of these people as the hotshot crews. Everything from the hotshot crews that jump out of airplanes into the woods to fight fires that are inaccessible to roadways to firefighters that are trained for both urban firefighting and forest firefighting and that are paid to some extent by the federal government. The government also wanted to provide a new fire detection and warning applications for citizens. This is for like situational awareness stuff. What would those look like? 
So we don't know the answer to that yet. The interesting thing to me was that at the meeting today with uh, it was a virtual summit with Western governors, there were uh, private sector representatives and the the White House uh, didn't really make clear at the beginning, at least. And I haven't seen a listing yet of the private sector folks that were there. But there are companies that basically take satellite data. So satellites uh, orbiting the Earth can detect a hotspot on the surface of the Earth down to a very, very high resolution and basically alert people that, you know, a fire seems to have started here. And a number of federal agencies use those and operate those satellites now. But the question is, well, can we put that tool in the hands of citizens so that it would alert them to a fire start near them that is maybe going to travel towards them? So maybe, you know, you might have companies, companies that I'm thinking of are social media companies like Facebook, mapping companies, you know, that have a very wide reach like Google may be involved in the sense that they have public safety wings and that they have a history of working with both the federal government and nonprofits. Well, I mean, it's good that they're putting a lot of attention and resources to this because we hit it every year. You mentioned in the article too, California experienced its worst wildfire season on record last year. Everybody just thinks it's going to continue to get even worse. So we're seeing these record temperatures, as you mentioned as well. All of this kind of forms into this worst case scenario for all of these fires. And, you know, we just obviously want to avoid as much of it as possible. So we'll see how all of this develops and hopefully the fire season doesn't get too bad. Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They found out that the drivers in New York and Newark spent a total of 494,268 hours in traffic, whereas Los Angeles, Long Beach, Anaheim spent only 365,543. Joining us now is Jordan Mendoza, reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I always like these types of stories only because I live in Los Angeles, so it's near and dear to my heart, all these things, and who doesn't hate traffic? But the champ has been dethroned. There's a new study out from uh, Texas A&M Transportation Institute, which ranks the worst traffic throughout the country. The Los Angeles, Long Beach, Anaheim region has had the worst traffic since 1982 for almost 30 years. And this past year, they were dethroned. Jordan, tell us a little bit about uh, what we're seeing with this. Since 1982, the Los Angeles, Long Beach, Anaheim region had had the title of the worst traffic in America. And it was like that all the way up until 2020 when Texas A&M Transportation Institute released their findings about this. And they found out that it actually belonged to New York and Newark region over there in New York. So they now have the title of worst traffic in America. How, how do they calculate what constitutes the worst traffic? So it's really interesting looking at the data that they have. So what it is, is they calculate how many hours total drivers had been spending in traffic. And when they calculated the numbers, they found out that the drivers in New York and Newark spent a total of 494,268 hours in traffic, whereas Los Angeles, Long Beach, Anaheim spent only 365,543. And while it is still a lot of hours spent in traffic, it's just a huge discrepancy of how 
traffic has gotten so much worse yeah. in New York, New York and Newark, while traffic in the LA region seemed to get better in the past year. Let's say all these hours were just one person. If you spent those four hundred ninety-four thousand hours stuck in traffic, that's fifty-six years that this theoretical person would have spent in traffic. And sometimes I know that it literally feels that. Like, that's how long you're spending in traffic. For California to drop on this, a lot of it obviously has to do with the pandemic, all those stay-at-home orders. Yeah, and the Texas a was very aware and acknowledging that a lot of the numbers dropped throughout the country. They took an average of the top 15 cities that had the worst traffic, and they found out that it dropped on an average from 312,000 to 152,000. That's a huge drop. And especially when you look at California, the stay-at-home orders were some of the most strict in the entire country to where a lot of people were starting to work from home or businesses were closing. So naturally, because of that, you know, you're going to see less traffic on the roads. Yeah. And, you know, L.A., as you mentioned earlier, you know, they were about 365,000 or so right there hours in traffic. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to compare that to 2019 hours pre-pandemic, that was at 952,000 183 hours spent in traffic. So that's just how big the discrepancy is, how much the pandemic impacted it. And and I know just anecdotally, it was kind of nice to drive during the pandemic on the freeways out here, super clean and easy. And all of that has really ticked back up right now. I mean, traffic is, is almost back to normal, I would say. Also in this study, they gave the number of average hours an individual driver spent in traffic. Run through some of those numbers with us. What's funny about if you look at the Los Angeles area is only an average driver spent 46 hours of the year in traffic, which is almost, you know, two days. And that sounds like a lot, but they only ranked fourth in the country. And it's crazy to see that if you look at the numbers going all the way back to 1982 in Los Angeles, the numbers were climbing higher and higher and higher to where in 1982, it was at 60 hours, and in 2019, it was at 119 hours. Wow. And so you see that traffic <laughs> traffic's getting worse and worse and worse in L.A., and the pandemic just absolutely changed all of that. Yeah. Now, yes, traffic is getting worse, and they said that in September, that's when numbers, starting to, numbers are starting to go up higher, and so I can only imagine it'll get back into the triple digits sooner rather than later. Yeah, the other top ones, obviously, New York, Newark, 56 hours spent in, in traffic, Boston, 50, Houston, 49. And after L.A. was San Francisco, Oakland, they had 46 hours spent in, in traffic. So, I, I mean, it's just crazy to think about all of that right now. You know, we're going into the 4th of July weekend. They're expecting that 47.7 million Americans are going to be traveling between July 1st and July 5th. 43 million of those are going to be hitting the road. So there's going to be traffic everywhere and uh, the worst times to leave are you know pretty much between one and five o'clock just about anywhere so uh get ready for that if that's what you're gonna be doing but for now la uh, no longer the worst traffic but i i guarantee you they're gonna be coming back the vengeance pretty soon jordan mendoza reporter at usa today thank you very much for joining us first thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.